And now join me as I read an important passage from God's holy word, the book of Acts, the second chapter, verses 42 through 47. Those who had been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute their proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My friends, it's a delight to be with you in worship. The other day I was sitting at our kitchen table and I was telling my family that Reverend Wortman was to defend his dissertation for his doctorate of ministry program over at Candler. And Marcella was eating lunch and she goes, wait, I thought Jared was already a doctor. I said, no, but he's going to be one in a few days' time. And she goes, well, what's his dissertation about? I said, well, it's about dementia. And then I tried my best to explain the disease called dementia to a seven-year-old, and I felt woefully unable to do so, but she got the gist that it's an alarming and difficult and hard thing. And I told her that Reverend Workman's research was about how the church can be a place and community and care for those who happen to have cognitive decline issues. And we talked about it more, and she looked at me and she goes, I like that dissertation. That's a good one. And so she gives Jared Wortman a seal of approval. But she's not the only one. So do I. Because this past week, I'm pleased to announce to the congregation and all those who are listening, Reverend Wortman, with no surprise, passed with flying colors. He is now Reverend Dr. Wortman. I made you a sign that I'd hold it up for you because I'm proud of you and Peachtree's proud of you. You can see a couple hashtags, peach tree proud and all that stuff. But I'm inviting the congregation to write notes and letters of congratulations and send them to the church. And we'll make sure that Reverend J. Ray, J. Ray Dr. Reverend Dr. J. Ray Wortman would get those. Uh, sometimes we just call him J. Wow in our house. But now we're going to have to call him Dr. J. Wow. So we are proud of you. And I can hear the thunderous applause all over the city, just like I heard when the blue angels were flying overhead yesterday. In your honor, my friend. God bless you. And the Thunderbirds, the lesser-known Thunderbirds. Friends, I think I'm worried that you're getting too used to streaming. So now for something completely different. Join me in prayer. God who loves us and knows us, speak to us now. Help us understand the heart of the church and our place within it, that we could find renewal even from sheltering in place. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Christ the Lord, we pray, and God's people all over say, Amen. When I was in high school, I played football, and my senior year, we were bonding quite well. The team decided that end of hell week, the, the two-a-day camp, that we would go in between the two practices to a restaurant in Decatur called the Old Country Buffet. 
The entire football team went in there, and we asked to have tables scooted together so that we could sit together. And there we had about 60 players just down one long, mishmash, pushed-together table, eating our weight in subpar buffet food. And then, that night, we went back to practice. It was the end of Hell Week and something that our coaches called Watermelon Day. To top off our culinary delights, we were allowed to put on our helmets and shoulder pads and push a watermelon with our heads in a bear crawl style from one end of the football field to the other, and then we could eat them. We all sat on our backsides, sweating, huffing, puffing, and in not a very dignified manner, gnawing on the pulp of watermelon as the juice just going down our chins. We looked at each other and all that we had been through together, and now we celebrated again with food. We knew we were different for having gone through what we've gone through. In the text that Reverend Bell just read to us in the early book of Acts, the disciples and early followers of Jesus have gone through a lot. They've seen his death and resurrection. They've spoken to the risen Lord. There is something marking them as different now. And because of that, they find ways to be together and bond and eat. The text tells us that they met regularly in each other's homes. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be good right about now? But they met regularly in each other's homes for fellowship, prayer, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread. They had everything in common. If one person lacked, another person gave. If one person lacked and someone had some possessions they could sell so that the other might benefit, they did that sort of thing. They found a way to come together and bond. And I think what really touches me this morning is the commonality bit, the, the, the togetherness bit. They were present to each other every Oh, so often they were just really together, so much so that they could be called family. They would call each other brother and sister, you know, and for good reason. They've been marked by a new blood. Family. We need family. You know, I've told you before that my dad's side of the family was fractured from divorce, and there's still a lot of scar tissue. And sometimes when the family gets together, it, it kind of reduces down into group therapy. A couple summers ago, family came up from Florida to visit us in Atlanta, and my parents came from Illinois to visit too, and we were all just in my home sitting around, and we kind of broke down in another group therapy session where we talk about this pain or that, this harsh word or this terrible thing done, and, and at some point, we just kind of shrugged and said, who cares? Life's short. We need each other. Forget the differences. Life's short. We need each other. We're family. I think that's how the disciples must have felt, you know. Things are too important. Let's be together. One of my favorite current theologians and philosophers, Norman Wurzba over at Duke, writes a lot of things that I love to read. His most recent book is called The Way of Love. And in The Way of Love, he, he says that we need to be together, present, we need to be together and present in order to learn and to practice love. When I read that, I, I thought there's something really correct about that, that intuitively I said, yes. But then I read it again this week, and I thought, ouch. How am I to learn and practice love when 
I'm not allowed to be together with so many people I'm related to and have connection with. As an aside, I think perhaps the great lesson of learning love right now is to say, I can learn and practice love by being physically distant for the goodness of someone else. Maybe that is how I am loving others, not for my own benefit and health, but for theirs. Well, we're trying our best, church, and you know that. We're trying our best to continue the spirit of the early church's connectivity and togetherness and life together. We've got things like Zoom. You know that. I'm tired of them, but we're all tired of Zoom calls, but they're better than nothing. We've got text, and we've got chats, and we've got Google Hangouts, and we've got streaming. This has been such a gift. And, and, and we do all these things to try to keep up the early church's focuses on praying together, fellowshipping together, some sense of commonality together. We even share the Lord's Supper together. But I think if we're all honest, it's not quite the same, is it? My family loves to go to Disney World, and amongst the parks we like the best, I think Epcot ranks up there pretty high, because on the back end of Epcot, you have all these worlds. You've got China, and you've got England, and Canada, and you can walk through them and get cuisine, supposed cuisine, from that area of the world. And then you see cultural artifacts and historical artifacts trying to give you a taste of that country's history and their their flavors and colors and sounds, and uh, just a little bit. The first time I went, I thought, wow, this is pretty neat. I'm kind of getting a dose of what it's like. And then I went to England for real for the first time. I backpacked across Scotland, and then I spent several days in London just walking everywhere, riding the tubes, smelling the air, walking the Thames, tasting fish and chips from a chippy. I learned to love salt and vinegar on fish and chips there. I spent time with people who had different accents and heard their stories. I saw how the landscape stretched and spread. Later that summer, I came home and went back to Epcot on a family trip, and it was different. I looked around and thought, huh, seemed not quite right, more plastic, more like a facade, really. A false simulacra of the real thing. Maybe that's how you feel about these realities and these moments, but I think we can all admit that given the time that we're in, they're goods, they're helpful for this time. And so we sit with you and we do the things that we read in Acts still because our tradition the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the wider restoration movement has read this text and said that is the heart of the church. And so the way we've built our churches is on these realities, fellowship, common life, praying together, the apostles' teaching, that's preaching and teaching, and then the breaking of bread together, which is why every one of our worship services' high focal point is Holy Communion and maybe you feel in your heart right now that as you sit wherever you are with whatever you have, and we are distanced digitally with what we have, and we go through the liturgy together, maybe you think that what is happening is a little bit diminished. Maybe you're right. 
But let me suggest to you that what we do for communion, if you are here today, is already diminished from the way the ancient primitive church practiced it. We would invite you in and give you a little cup and a bite-sized wafer. It's all individualistic, really. The ancients, you know, the ancient people, they gathered in their homes. Boy, I just keep coming back to that thinking that'd be pretty nice right now. And they set their tables. I'm not pretending that these are relics of another time. These are just plates that we have here at church and napkins I brought from home. But they would set their tables. And if you can imagine it, a family with a certain amount of means might be roasting some beautiful meat over fire. The fat dripping down, being caught in the bucket below. You can imagine the, the smell of hot baked bread. Oh, don't you love a good loaf of delicious bread? Put it right in the t- center of the table there. And, and, and then there would be these jugs of wine just all around the, the table, and people would be coming in and maybe enjoying some olives or some vegetables. And they would eat these meals Some people have called them love feasts, the end of the meal with reflection and joy on the fact that they have been brought together and made family by Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come for them and not come for them alone. That's the thing about salvation, because we're not saved for ourselves, we're saved for ourselves and for others as well. They'd eat this meal in honor of Christ, and they would drink to Christ Hold on, I'm setting this wrong over here. I can't do that. Later on, this great love feast would be called Eucharist or communion. And it gets me thinking today. There's something else about the Christian tradition that I find fascinating. You know, for the long tenure of our church, from Scripture even, The Christian family, started by a couple who got married, is really a microcosm of the church, a small church, an extension of the church. Whatever's done in church is really supposed to be done in a Christian home, albeit more intimately and more intensely. Our homes ought to be locations of prayer and praise Our homes ought to also be locations of evangelism. I know that might scare you, but if you are called by God to have children, your children are the first ones God told you, tell the gospel to. Our homes ought to be about discipleship. In my home, Colleen and I shape each other's faith, and we work hard to build and shape the faith of our children. Homes, Christian homes, ought to mirror the church in hospitality and charity and generosity and togetherness. What that means is that your home has a mission. It's not simply a private box for you to practice private happiness with whomever you've decided to let in the doors. It's, it's supposed to have grace flowing out of it, out the front doors and bleeding into your neighborhoods and going wherever you go. It ought to be a place of sanctuary to do ministry from, my friends. And if this is all true, and I believe that it is, then maybe tonight if you are blessed enough to be sheltering in place with some Christians. Maybe your meal doesn't have to be just about sustenance. If you are in a Christian home or with anyone, 
eat with them beyond sustenance, eat with them towards the light of the Eucharist. It begins by setting a table. He set a table and then prepare something delicious. I give you forgiveness of your sins for making something fatty and good, but make something delicious. Make a pot roast or maybe fry up a fish and some lemon and butter. Get a nice big salad out of your garden. Slice up tomatoes and put some balsamic vinegar on it. Make it aromatic and beautiful. Have some bread, some beautiful bread. Maybe bake the bread. I don't know. If you do, send me some, won't you? Pour some wine. Sit with people with glad and sincere hearts and raise a glass to Christ the Lord who has made you family, who has made you and the people that you are with one. Because that's the other message of Eucharist is that God has called us all together to be one family under his care. If you're at home and you're not fortunate enough to be with others, you are just alone. I still say begin by setting the table. Make something good and use the tools that we have at our disposal to connect. Call a friend, put it on speaker, and raise a glass to the one who gives you life. Raise a glass to the one who makes you whole. Drink and eat unto the Lord and remember his death until he comes. This is the heart and hallmark of our faith, friends. You know, I was listening to Sam Sifton be interviewed. He is the New York Times food editor. I love when he describes what he's making in the kitchen. It makes me hungry every time. He was being interviewed on his new book, See You on Sunday. And in that book, or in the interview, he told uh, the interviewer that Sunday dinners are a fact of life. They're not dinner parties. And they don't have utilitarian means. They're not to close a business deal. They are a fact and a good in and of themselves. And I thought when I heard that, there's something more to what he means. So I bought the cookbook. It's got all these meals for Sunday dinners. And in the beginning, he has this thing called the philosophy of the Sunday dinner. And as I was reading it, I, I, my intuition that there was more was revealed that I was correct he says in New York, sometimes he likes to take his kids to a church, and then after church service, he cooks for the church and the homeless friends that live around the building. The kids always complain at church. Preaching's boring, uh, music's not cool, whatever. They get bored. But afterwards, when they gather and he's cooking this great meal, he watches his kids interact with people that they don't normally interact with, people of different demographics and age, and age ranges. And they tell stories and hear stories, and they laugh, and they eat, and it's good. On the way home, he said, one time he was driving, his kids were nodding off, complaining about how boring church was. One of the kids said, church should just be Sunday dinner. And he said, well, that's what church is, because church is surrounded by a bread and a cup. And I Googled Sam Sifton, and was shocked, but surprised, happily surprised to find out his grandfather was Reinhold Niebuhr, one of our great American theologians. But the point is, is there something more going on here? And friends, if we can't be together for some time, make sure what you do in your home is an extension of what we do at church. You don't go to church and then leave it. You take you where you go. 
So begin by setting the table. And then raise a glass unto the Lord. Raise your spirits with others that you love and you know, for we are all made one by the blood of Jesus Christ. And also know that we were meant to be together, and we will be together again. I don't know when. We will be when it is safe for the least of these. But we will gather together, and we will rejoice. But until then, why don't you start by setting the table? God bless you.